I think your analysis on that is pretty much spot on. It's just, it is interesting to see because we haven't seen this yet before. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to Compliance Into the Weeds, a podcast where, with my good friend and colleague, Matt Kelly, we take a deep dive into a compliance topic. In this episode, we take a look at the KT Corp FCPA enforcement action. Although the fine and penalty was relatively small, it turns out there was quite a bit of interesting information in the SEC cease and desist order, which Matt and I take a deep dive into and unpack for you. I know you will find it useful for your compliance program going forward. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. Today, we're going to take up what's become an increasing rarity, an FCPA enforcement action. Uh, We have the KT Corp from South Korea, and uh, it is uh, in many ways a very interesting enforcement action. Not a lot of fines and penalties, but uh, it turns out there's more meat on this one's bone. So, Matt, first of all, welcome. Uh, hello, Tom. So, Matt, you want to kind of set the stage for this one because uh, I'm not sure how to characterize it. Um, you'll see in my blog post tomorrow. Well, yeah, I guess we could maybe charitably describe this FCPA case as Byzantine or voluminous or just long and big because there's a lot in here. Uh, this came from the Securities and Exchange Commission late last week where the SEC hit KT Corporation with a $6.3 million uh, settlement. Uh, it includes $2.8 million in disgorgement, $3.5 million in a civil penalty. Uh, KT neither confirms nor denies any of the allegations, blah, 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 that we always see in SEC settlements. But uh, nonetheless, if you dive into the SEC settlement order, this is a, it lists a at least four different significant corruption schemes, by my count, that happened to KT in the 2010s. Um, Let me see if I can go through them all. Number one, from 2009 to 2013, was uh, bribery scandal number one, where KT's senior executives were arranging to pay inflated bonuses to other KT executives, who then kicked that extra money back to the company that they kept in cash and stored in the company safe, which they then used to pay bribes to Korean lawmakers. So says the SEC. And that went on from 2009 to 2013, when it finally came to light. The then chairman and CEO of the company resigned immediately after publication of this scandal. Uh, Matt, before we... Before we get to number two, can I just throw in the thing that struck me of why this was so fascinating was um, after the kickbacks were made, uh, they actually stored the money in a safe because it was cash. Yes. Uh, we, we haven't had a cash-based bribery and corruption scandal in some time, and so my theme for tomorrow is somewhat times the old ways are the best ways. And South Korea's KT Corp certainly found that. And they continued the theme of cash through some of the other bribery schemes. But sorry, I interrupted you. On to bribery scheme number two. Exactly. Once the bribery scheme number one unraveled and they realized, well, we can't just keep cash kicking around in the safe, which was on the 16th floor of KT headquarters, they moved on to a gift card scandal where uh, one mid-level 
functionary in KT's corporate relations department, uh, he was instructed to meet with KT, a KT vendor, we don't know which vendor, uh, in a van in a parking lot next to KT headquarters where they arranged to buy a large number of gift cards, except then the vendor would show up, there would be no actual gift cards, by then it was converted to cash, which they gave to KT in a manila envelope, which was then dispersed to employees who then moved the money from their personal accounts to be political campaign contributions, quote unquote, uh, to South Korean lawmakers. And uh, they figured that was a better way to do it than just keeping the cash around in the company safe. Uh, That ran from 2014 into, I think, 2017. So that's bribery scandal number two. We're halfway done. Uh, Then there's bribery scandal number three was just a princeling scandal kind of run-of-the-mill at this point. You know, we've seen these before, usually in the Far East and in China in particular. Uh, But that was where KT executives agreed to hire the relatives of influential Korean lawmakers. They hired at least two relatives uh, at inflated salaries. I don't know if these were no-show jobs or sometimes show jobs. Maybe they were actually real jobs. Who knows? But they were uh, basically given to the uh, relatives because they were looking to curry favor with South Korean lawmakers. So that's bribery scandal number three. Uh, And all of that happened within Korea. And then finally, we have bribery scandal number four, which actually happened in Vietnam. Again, kind of run of the mill at this point where KT executives were working with local agents in Vietnam to arrange kickbacks to win government contracts to build a, I think, a solar power plant in Vietnam and to provide IT services to some technical colleges in Vietnam. So that's four separate scandals, all of them happening in the 2010s. Um, As recently as November of last year, just three months ago, uh, South Korean law enforcement indicted the company, indicted a wave of senior executives, numerous KT chief executive officers and chairmen have been forced to resign, indicted, sentenced to prison over the last decade or so. Uh, This seems to be a recurring theme with KT leadership over the years. Uh, And Tom, this is just the the stuff that is a civil FCPA violation. There is other misconduct KT KT has done, which is corrupt in Korea, but is not necessarily under an SEC jurisdiction. So like I said, voluminous, Byzantine, whatever adjective you want along those lines, that is what we have to deal with. I'd like to add two additional points. uh, And this is the first time I've learned what the Blue House is. And the Blue House is the South Korean equivalent of the White House. So when you say go blue, Mm -hmm. you may be thinking you're talking about the University of Michigan. But it turns out you may be talking about the South Korean White House. Uh, The second thing is uh, in bribery scheme two, which started off as gift cards, which morphed into cash, which was transmitted to the employees and then paid to South Korean politicians. Uh, It also had the side benefit, because the employees paid it individually, of getting around South Korea's uh, political campaign law, which says that corporations cannot make donations to the uh, politicians directly. So uh, they got around that. So here's a question I have for you, Matt. We have a South Korean corporation operating in South Korea. Why is the SEC involved in this? Well, you know, picking up on what you were just talking about with the campaign contributions, I thought that was really interesting, is that 
for foreign private issuers, so foreign company listed on U.S. exchanges, a foreign private issuer could commit bribery of local employees bribing local government officials in their home country, and it is still, in the eyes of the SEC, a foreign government official because you are subject to the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act through listing on a U.S. exchange. It's a bit of a you know mental jujitsu, but it would be equivalent to, say, a British financial asset management firm uh, that owns a U.S. subsidiary, directing the U.S. subsidiary to kick back some donations to your local state reps so we can win business with the state pension fund. Now, in the United States, that is a criminal offense of pay-to-play laws, and that's a big thing. There's enforcement of that. At the state level, on the criminal side of the Justice Department, at the SEC, you can't do pay-to-play. But it is also, in UK law then, in my hypothetical, that would be a violation of the UK Bribery Act. Even though U.S. employees of a U.S. subsidiary of a British company are bribing U.S. government officials, it's the same thing, just kind of flipped to the U.S. and South Korea. So it really opens an interesting window into political campaign compliance. That is a thing. You have to think about it. If you're a U.S. company, regardless of who owns you, you have to think about, you know, are we violating a pay-to-play law? Are we engaging in some sort of domestic corrupt practices, which you sometimes see U.S. attorneys, uh, they they will prosecute that. We saw that with First Energy is a big utility out in Ohio. They got busted for kickbacks to local Pauls in, I think, Ohio and Illinois. Um, It's kind of like that with this extra foreign dimension to it because the foreign private issuer, KT, is listed on the U.S. stock exchange. And so I guess the only thing I would say, Matt, is I don't find the mental judicu quite as daunting because they had American uh, depository shares or they held American depository shares, and that's specifically listed in the FCPA as a basis for jurisdiction. So there's a statutory basis for jurisdiction. And I guess one of the lessons that I would like the greater compliance or legal community to understand is if you in the U.S. representing one of those foreign private issuers, but they have ADRs uh, here in the United States, they need to understand they are 110% subject to the FCPA uh, down to the point where uh, one of the things I wanted to explore in the Vietnamese bribery scandal, in addition to no financial or, or lack of internal controls around compliance, they didn't have a compliance program. And so uh, I don't, you know, companies need to understand if they're going to take advantage of any kind of listing on the U.S. public markets or with ADRs, there are going to be certain obligations. And apparently that word hasn't gone out. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor and be right back. I thought that was very interesting that um, I suspect maybe at the upper corporate level of a foreign private issuer, the legal department or the general counsel might grasp, oh, yeah, this is going to apply to us. But it really draws a bright underline under this is why you need to train your employees, foreign private issuers, because I could easily see legions of KT employees thinking, 
well, I'm a Korean national at a Korean company and I'm only giving you know donations or whatever you want to call it. I'm only giving that to my Korean lawmaker. How is this the U.S. business? Well, like legally it is, but it's it could be a nuanced thing for lower level employees um, at some companies out there. And you're going to have to think about how do you make sure that training is effective. In addition to your uh, thoughts that perhaps we uh, you need a flow chart just to figure out all the bribery schemes, you might also need a scorecard just to keep up with the players in this because they've multiplied out in the Vietnamese bribery scandal. And that's also, Matt, where I found an interesting lesson for compliance practitioners. And that's around the structure of a, not necessarily a partnership, although you could call it that, but a business venture to garner a big contract. And we had K, uh, KT Corp was basically a uh, uh, partner number one, uh, or, or the, the largest minor minority partner in a consortium who was going to build a project. Deal was cut to make the bribe to get the contract, and then the majority partner got cold feet and said, no, we don't want to engage in bribery and corruption, and indeed, we're going to pull out of the deal if we have to do this, and they did pull out of the deal. But they, uh, the deal got restructured so that KT Corp became the majority uh, partner in this consortium. And then they brought in other uh, new partners and elevated some minor partners up. So it really drove home to me the message that even if it's not a joint venture, even if it's not an acquisition, there are still multiple ways to get into trouble just normal in normal business and you may have the situation where you have multiple companies kind of coming together on a one-time basis as a consortium or other business venture uh, to, um, to engage in a project. And here we had that precisely around K2 Corp in Vietnam. You know, so Tom, first I'm going to admit that I have not read the Vietnam part of the settlement in detail because like, I just stuck with scandals one through three and I was already running a huge post before I even got to number four. So I'll just take your word on a lot of the details there. But I will say one thing that struck me about the settlement overall and KT's issues, which I think is reflected in what you are describing right now, is just they had a terrible tone at the top. I mean, this was a terrible tone. I can't really emphasize that enough, where they had multiple consecutive CEOs resigning, getting indicted, and then winding up going to trial, getting sentenced uh, over a period of, I think, 10 or 12 years. Um, so it really, it shows that if you're structuring a consortium for a big investment and the majority partner says, I'm out because this is bribery and I don't want to be part of it, like... Take that as a sign that this is probably not a good idea. Step back and review and reevaluate what you want to do. And when your tone is that bad, of course you're going to say, well, in that case, I guess we have to find some other way to make this deal work with the bribery element instead of the more obvious, sensible choice. Maybe we should get out of this, too. Um, For all of our talk about compliance lessons, and we still have more that we could explore if we want, like... All of it is a bit academic in KT's case because it's just it was an endemic, persistent, pro-corruption tone at the top for at least a dozen years. And I still am eager to see, you know, how is this going to go to trial? Uh, who else is going to wind up implicated? What are the sentences going to be? 
you know, how high did this scandal go? Well, Tom, you and I were just talking about the Blue House. So if a scandal goes directly into, say, the White House in the United States, we all know that's a big deal. It gives you a sense of just how pervasive and fundamental corrupt dealings were to Korean, you know, gigantic conglomerates like KT for a long, long time. But there are two additional points I'd like to explore a little bit, and one is the overall fine and penalty. Uh, I think we have to say relatively small. Uh, we don't have a lot of information other than some numbers around business that was garnered for the specific bribes, both the cash-based bribes, the two cash-based bribery schemes in Korea, and then the uh, Vietnamese project. Um, so there may have been a relatively small amount of direct profit from these these bribery schemes. Uh, the s- second thing is you mentioned there's multiple other uh, legal violations by KT Corp in uh, South Korea that you've been able to uncover just uh, doing some research for your blog post. And maybe the U.S. felt that the South Koreans had um, really taken the, uh, the the brunt of it or, or rather taken the lead in, in doing yeah. uh, investigations and enforcement. Uh, really, any thoughts one way or the other on that point? Well, I, I was interested specifically that the total settlement, $6.3 million, more than half of that is a civil penalty. Now, you're right that $6.3 million is not a large amount in the grand scheme of things, but when more than half of the settlement is just a civil penalty beyond disgorgement of ill-gotten gains, I do think that is significant because, Tom, you and I have talked before that the SEC's enforcement division and multiple SEC commissioners now have said that penalties are there to punish, and they are also there to deter other companies from doing something else like this in the future. And they were not going to be timid about imposing more and more civil penalties. We see that here. Um, Maybe if there was a larger type of misconduct, we'd see a much larger total fine and settlement. We're we're not seeing that, but we are seeing a majority of the amount is just a pure penalty. Um, Tom, the other thing that I was interested in was that there's this, I describe it as a quasi-probationary period for two years where KT must uh, submit every six months or so a status update on the state of its compliance program improvements to the SEC. It must disclose any new evidence of other corruption schemes that it might find. Given KT's past history, I wouldn't be surprised if that happens. Um, but also, like it, it pretty much flat out says, KT is not actually done with improving its compliance program at the time of this settlement. And we typically do see that uh, the Justice Department always says that we want to see a effective compliance program at the time of settlement. My reading of the SEC's order, at least over here on the SEC side, KT doesn't have that yet. They don't have a fully effective compliance program. I don't know how close they are to fully effective, but I don't think they're there. And yet we have a settlement. And that struck me as uh, unusual. I don't know what you think. So that was the second point I wanted to raise, although I I came at it in a little bit different angle because I thought of it in the light of Lisa Monaco's October speech around monitorships. And for the first time, I really sat and read the requirements in an SEC order uh, that you just uh, went through with us, Matt. And it struck me that it is a 
can be a rigorous requirement if the SEC so chooses to enforcement. And then to your point that uh, if something else comes up, if something else happens, if something else discovered, and I got to believe the South Korean press will probably be the lead on reporting that, if that comes out and it's not self-disclosed to the SEC, would the SEC step in with either additional penalties or slap a monitorship uh, on KT Corp? Uh, because they do have significant reporting requirements. It does read almost like a probationary period, and it's uh, an additional two years with reports, status reports due uh, every six months. So I thought that uh, that, in the context of Lisa Monaco's speech, was an additional factor that uh, brought some interest to me. I think your analysis on that is pretty much spot on. It's just it is interesting to see because we haven't seen this yet before. Um I will say it was notable that, you know, as we describe it as a quasi-probationary period, they do not have anything like a quasi-monitor involved here. They have to self-report. Um, KT did not self-report this misconduct to U.S. authorities. Uh, it looks to me like they were pretty cooperative in the investigation, but perhaps not totally. There's a lot about they provided some documents that we requested, but doesn't say all documents. So I don't quite know what that means. But yeah, I do think that maybe this is the SEC trying to keep some extra punishment in its back pocket to spring upon the company should they not disclose future misconduct, should they disclose it anyways, and it's really bad, um, should they somehow flub up whatever improvements they're trying to make right now. Um, but maybe that's going to be this mechanism that you and I have been wondering, how are we going to handle recidivist FCPA offenders? Now, KT is not a recidivist in the eyes of the SEC yet, but they have given me abundant confidence that I somehow think this is not the last incident of corruption that KT is going to have to deal with. Uh, so what would happen if they did find more? And you know, maybe it would be something like what you're describing. Matt, it turns out uh, there was quite a bit to talk about. I actually got three blog posts out of it. So uh, pretty uh, uh, a lot of information, uh, some into the weed stuff for compliance practitioners, some much bigger picture, larger lessons. So uh, a lot to mull over, a lot for both the general counsel and a chief compliance officer to uh, take a look at. And uh, I think you're right. We may be seeing or hearing from KT Corp again. All right. Thank you, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. I hope you will check out my latest podcast series on the Compliance Podcast Network. The podcast is called ESG Compliance. And in this podcast series, I take a deep dive into the intersection of ESG and compliance. If you're a compliance professional or you're an ESG aficionado, this will be the podcast for you. It's available on the Compliance Podcast Network beginning February 8th. I hope you'll join Matt and I again next week for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.